0: You're listening to Mental Work. I'm your host, Bronwyn, an early career psychologist based in Australia. And this is the podcast taking a closer look at the challenges faced by early career mental health professionals so they don't have to go it alone. Welcome back to Mental Work. So glad you're here listening with us. And I'm really excited because today I'm sharing the mic with Rebecca Cuskelley a clinical psychologist and director of the practice on the North Shore of Sydney and we're going to be talking to you today about a broad range of topics related to working in private practice as an early career mental health professional, one of those being loneliness. So we'll just introduce you to Rebecca. Rebecca,
1: hi and tell us about yourself. Hi, Bronwyn. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. And like Bronwyn said, I'm one of two directors and founders at the practice healthcare, um, which is a private practice in Sydney. Uh, We do a lot of eating disorder work, um, some general mental health work and some child and adolescent work. I've been a psychologist for about 15 years and worked in community mental health teams, inpatient hospital settings, outpatient hospital settings um, and private practice. Um, So hopefully I can tell your listeners a little bit about some of the specific things about working in private practice.
0: Yeah, I think that'd be really amazing. So clearly Rebecca has lots of experience in this area and she might feel a bit nervous by me saying that, but I'm sure we can learn a lot from her. So I'm really interested to start with this idea of loneliness, because it's something that I think is quite common, but maybe underacknowledged in the mental health profession. I know I've experienced it as a solo private practitioner, and it feels super isolating. So is this something that you also experienced maybe
1: early on in your career, Rebecca? Definitely. Um, So kind of mid-career for me. So I had a weird experience, I guess, um, compared to lots of new grads now who are moving into more private practice roles early in their careers. I worked in team settings for the first seven, no, not that long, six years of my career, um, where I sat in an open plan office um, and had people all around me, where I co-ran groups, where I did home visits with other mental health clinicians, where I worked really closely with other disciplines. So I had this really lovely start to my career where I had a lot of engagement. And then when I first moved into private practice, it was really stark to me how different that was, that I would go into work for a nine hour day And apart from my clients, like I might not talk to anyone except maybe the administrative person for a couple of minutes. That feels sad. Yeah. Yeah, in a small three by four meter room and have these like big emotional experiences with clients, some beautiful and not really have anyone to kind of share or debrief with them or celebrate the wins with. And it was yeah, really strange um, and really different to my earlier experiences, um, which I think had been quite protective of loneliness, of burnout, of all those things.
0: So you feel like maybe with the earlier experience, like if you had a win or maybe a big emotional conversation with a client, you were able to debrief after?
1: Yeah, straight away. Yeah. Um, Or often there would even be someone in the room with me that when I was working community mental health when we were doing risk assessments or called to the emergency department to do an assessment of someone we would nearly always do that in a pair so it was someone actually right there holding the space with you and holding half that emotion and yeah someone to talk about it afterwards with yeah incredibly different
0: so it was like when you went into private practice was that solo private practice for you or
1: were you always in a group Um, So I was in a small group practice, Yeah. but the way that it was set up was probably much more solitary um, and parameters around how many clients to see in a day and what they needed the room used for and the hours that you could have the room. So there wasn't a lot of flexibility in terms of being able to kind of set your own day and make sure there was space with other people. And it was quite a small practice. There weren't lots of people around any way to kind of have lunch with or have a chat with, or
0: so it was. It, it. I mean, the only word I can think of is that it sounds
1: very isolating. Mm, yep, yeah, hugely so, right? Yeah, and particularly as you know, like some of the stuff. Sometimes we hear stuff that like it's pretty shocking or kind of shakes our worldview a bit, and to have to go straight back into being in a calm and centered place for your next client without any emotional support for you is pretty difficult.
0: Yeah, it's pretty like it's pretty grinding. Like in my own personal experience, it's kind of like I finished with a client and I'm trying to get myself to do a reflection afterwards, but often I just run out of time. And so I've got enough time to do my notes. And that's how I manage burnout because I'm like, okay, I'll do the notes straight after. And then I just don't have time for anything else. So it's like the emotional self care goes out the window and it just grinds you down over time. I wonder if that's your experience.
1: Yeah, Elena, I think it's so interesting, right, that we spend so much time talking to clients about this stuff and how important your emotional needs are and then psychologists are often terrible. Right? Yeah, oh, 100%. Um, and when you have to make a choice, right, between having a glass of water or going to the toilet, if you're going to run on time, that's not an ideal way to kind of set up your day.
0: Absolutely. Maybe you could speak to this idea that maybe the isolation we experience in private practice I don't know,
1: do you think it's different to other types of isolation or do you think there's overlap? I think it is. I think in most careers that where there's some kind of emotional stress or like emotional stuff that people have to hold, there's often like a really strong sense of camaraderie and kind of culture and sometimes that gets problematic. Um, I guess I'm thinking of things like paramedics and police and often there is a real kind of sense of community around holding that stuff but in psychology it's very solo even in terms of doctors and surgeons and stuff um, and hospital settings that tends to be more shared than we experience it in private practice.
0: Why do you think that is? Like, is it something to do with the culture of our
1: profession or is it something else? I think part of it is systemic, that it's really hard to do it a different way in terms of actually being one-on-one in the room with people. And then the way that private practice in Australia has grown really since the introduction of the Medicare Better Access Scheme about 15 years ago is that most practices kind of are set up in a way, I think, to, I can't really think how to put this diplomatically for a while, but to see as many clients as they can In the rooms they've got. So there is this kind of pressure to use your room space for the whole time you have available.
0: I mean, absolutely. Like just to validate that, I think like most of our listeners, like me, myself, it's like my KPI as a provisional cycle is six hours a day. I was expecting to see six clients a day right from the get-go. And I think actually that experience is more common than the alternative experience of, oh, you can see three clients a day and just work up and you'll be all right. And that sounds like a dream to me. And when I see that, I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Um, So, yeah, I think most of our listeners can uh, resonate with that experience of uh, having to use the room a lot and get as many clients in as possible
1: yeah so I think in that way it's probably like closer in some ways to a culture like um, solicitors working in a billable hours kind of format and I guess I hear similar things from people who work in that kind of culture about how there's a lot of pressure, there's not a lot of support, there's not a lot of time for incidental work stuff.
0: Again, it makes me feel really sad. And I'm wondering, Rebecca, like when you were speaking earlier about loneliness kind of being your experience in the
1: isolation, just what impact do you think it had on you? I think it made me question, and I think this is a really common experience for burnout, whether I chose in the right profession. Yep. Yep. Whether this is something I actually wanted to do. I was quite lucky in that I was only doing that a couple of days a week and I still had a hospital job and I still was really enjoying the team aspect of the hospital job. Um, And what ended up happening was that I had two friends from the hospital job and we were having dinner one night and we had all in completely separate practices. So, So it was myself the other director now and a dietitian set up with us originally. And we were all saying that we'd had not very pleasant experiences in private practice separately. And how great would it be if you could have a private practice jobs with all the benefits of private practice, but where you still had friends to have lunch with and you still could like see people and have a quick chat between clients. And we we're like, yeah, that would be amazing. Oh, we could do that. That is something that could actually be done. Um, and that's how we set up the practice.
0: Wow. So that loneliness feeling, I always say to clients, like I see loneliness as a sign that you need to connect. And so it kind of sounds like you took that motivation and ran with it. Yeah. Yep. And like, did it give you like hope immediately? Like how did that help you with feelings of isolation?
1: Yeah, it was almost immediate. It was always a really knowing that you're going to go into work and your friends are going to be there is nice, right? Like you don't get that Sunday night dread like, oh, no, I have to go to work tomorrow. It's like, oh, tomorrow I get to go to work and I get to have like a coffee with my friend and immediately kind of made me feel more work was more enjoyable and more connected that I would have people to kind of share the feeling of risk with which is another part of private practice we haven't talked about but that feeling that you're going to hold all of that on your own knowing that there would be always someone there that I could bounce things off was really reassuring
0: and I mean just touching on that like It is so anxiety-provoking being in a solo private practice. Like my risk assessment sheet, I think is about three pages long because that's how I manage my anxiety by making it very detailed. And I'm like, okay, I've covered all my bases, but wouldn't it be so nice if you were with other people and you could, you know, talk about the case and say how you would manage this risk? Yeah, totally. Just
1: to know that there was someone you could grab for five minutes afterwards. Um, to just kind of check it off with or the worst case scenario you had to kind of physically contain some risk to know that there were other people in the office who wouldn't mind um, kind of being there and helping with that or calling an ambulance while you sat with a patient kind of worst case scenario that was very helpful
0: yeah it sounds like it and just touching on what you said before as well I used to work in a private hospital and I really loved my team that I worked with and it just resonated with me and you were like see your friends every day because to me it was like I'd go into hospital I'd be like friend party it's like we're all like happy and catching up and it's like I'll go deal with the food and I'll talk to this patient in between we're like having a great time and it's just so enjoyable and I totally get when it's like in private practice it's just okay hi me
1: Yeah, exactly right. And often what I've heard kind of talking to other people is that even sometimes when people work in private practices for quite a long time, they don't make connections with any of the people they work with. They're like ships in the night. If you haven't maintained collegial relationships from other workplaces or from university or some other space, people can end up really isolated Because generally it's work where we make those relationships, right? And we have other people to share our identity as a psychologist with.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I've actually thought about this idea of loneliness in our profession before. And I just wondered, like, can I run something past you? Mm. Because I think it might like uniquely affect us because, okay, when we're seeing clients all day, it is like emotional there is an emotional element to it, but it's also like professional self. It's therapist professional self. So even though you you have very emotional connections with clients and you're deeply empathizing with them, there is still that kind of arm's length, being in the professional self, um, delivering that service. Um, and so I almost feel like it's a different type of connection to the ones that I have with my friends and partners and family. So, but then I'm emotionally tired, and then I'm like, well, do I have these emotional resources to give my family? And then I think that less leads to loneliness as well. That's kind of complicated. Did you get what I say?
1: Totally get that. I think that's a really good formulation, right, that you are putting out a lot of emotional connectedness, if that makes sense, um, and meeting lots of people's needs on that level. So you might not want to do that when you finish work at 5 o'clock, but you hopefully professionally shouldn't really be getting that many of your emotional needs met in the therapy room. So if you don't have the energy to do that after the work, they're not going to get fulfilled. And I think we saw that in COVID, right, with lockdowns that people working from home, even if they had only had a little bit of, you know, chat with the receptionist or five minutes with a colleague, even losing that and just going, seeing client after client with nothing else, people reported feeling really isolated and lonely.
0: Yeah. I've done a a previous episode on burnout. And when I was researching that, I did find a few research articles that look specifically at healthcare professionals and COVID and burnout. And professional isolation was actually a key factor that predicted burnout. So yeah, totally backs up. Makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm wondering, Rebecca, like I'm really pleased to you that you managed to find some friends and then go into this group practice, but maybe are there any recommendations you could give to the listener if they are feeling really isolated where they don't have any buds from like, their previous workplace, is there anything that we can do?
1: Yeah, so something I completely coincidentally saw this week, um, so two levels to this. One is that I think professional identity online groups are really helpful so even like Facebook pages um, which I think is how we made our connection from when even that I think sometimes is like a bit of a dipping the toe in the water right you've still got a community people who can like validate some of the difficulties people to connect with and around identity but within some of those circles this week I've seen two different sites setting up um, not peer supervision but like community catch-ups for sites in particular areas So I saw someone today setting one up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. So for anyone in solo private practice, we're going to have drinks at the pub on a Sunday afternoon once a month. And I think being open, even though it's scary and can be really anxiety-provoking to either reaching out and responding to that kind of thing or setting it up yourself to create kind of networks with other people who are in similar situations, whether it's kind of like a Zoom peer supervision group or I think it is really important to try and create some of those collegial kind And relationships.
0: And that sounds like it could be really helpful, I think. And so it does require, I guess, putting yourself out there and maybe meeting up with people you don't know, but assuming like maybe you're in the same boat and you both just want to connect with each other.
1: Yeah, exactly right.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's so helpful. And maybe maybe we can move on to the multidisciplinary teams. Is there anything else that you wanted to say on that subject alone? So no, we so probably weave into the next thing, but is there anything that we've missed so far?
1: I guess I could say something too. If you are looking to join a group practice, it would be one of the things that I would directly ask about is what is the culture here around relationships between the team? Do People go out for after-work drinks. Do they have lunch together? What percentage of people come to the peer supervision? Do people tend to come in and see clients back-to-back and then leave? Like, ask questions about what the culture is like, if that's important to you.
0: That's such a good point. Could you tell us then what would be any red flags?
1: I think it depends on the way you work, but particularly because we're talking to kind of early career psychologists Any setting that said you didn't have control over how you structured your diary. Most early career psychs I talk to say things like they want to see two clients and then have a break or at most kind of three clients and have a break and not see more than X number of clients in a day. I think a supportive work environment should let you set your diary up however you like and whatever works best for you. And they should be able to tell you when most people have lunch. So you have the best chance of like catching people and actually starting to form those relationships. And I would investigate a bit more if there were parameters around the room that you have use of about when you could use it so that then to make it financially worthwhile for you, you had to use it in a way that it was kind of back to back. So if they were saying, well, people, here's split the room between and someone has it eight to one and someone has it one to six If that means for you, then you have to see four clients in a row or whatever it is, I think that would be something that I would then ask some more questions about and make sure I could make work.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I've thought about that myself. I've actually experimented with lots of different ways of structuring my time just to kind of balance that emotion, allow me enough time to finish notes because then I found that if I was doing back-to-back, then I was leaving notes, and then a week later I'd go back to the notes and then I'd hate it. So there's a lot of factors considering just tiredness as well. So thank you. That's so helpful for it's it's that like yeah just don't consider but it's
1: it's something to
0: bring up and I guess like don't be scared about bringing it up right
1: yeah totally it's I say like a buyer's market at the moment in terms of it's much harder to recruit psychs than it is to get a job so ask about all the things you want to ask about and you're probably in a pretty good position to structure a workplace in a way that's ideal for you
0: yeah. And like, theoretically, it's like, if you've got a good group practice director, then they should be wanting to support your longevity, I guess, in the practice. Like group practice directors, like, correct me if I'm mistaken, but they don't want to see you burn out in like two weeks and they not have like a person who they can have at their workplace. Right.
1: Yeah. Terrible outcome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and most group practice owners have hopefully kind of been around the block a little bit and know that there's particular ways of working that are not very sustaining so that even when people come to me and my co-director and say this is the way we want to work often we're the people saying I don't think you should work that way I think yeah Yeah. Um, yeah so kind of like whether people are talking about burnout even at the recruitment stage and whether people are talking about like satisfaction and yeah
0: Awesome. Thank you. It's good to know, because I think like, I always assume on the podcast, if I have a fear that, you know, somebody else, another listener is going to be fearing it. And, um, I always like, I have a little bit of a fear of like going into job interviews and, and I guess like, maybe like this is a female thing, but not appearing difficult. Um, so there is a lot of hesitation and being like, well, somebody else will just accept these terms. I can't ask for things, but maybe like listeners it's, I guess what I'm hearing is like, yeah, do do ask because you're supporting yourself, but you're also kind of aligned with the group practice and what they want as well.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: Not awesome. Is there if we do like a 360 and go into the multidisciplinary teams? Completely. So with that, I'm really interested in this just because I think it could benefit a lot of listeners just knowing like a few things about non-multidisciplinary teams. Or so I guess the first thing we know is that like it can lead to less loneliness potentially so that's a really nice thing what do you find uh, like are there any kind of common fears that early career clinicians have in working with different disciplines maybe the lack of knowledge or what have you seen
1: yeah I think the two biggest things I've seen is like one anxiety about the actual communication. So anxiety about picking up the phone or scheduling a case conference or writing a letter that they might be anxious about being rebuffed or they might be anxious about overstepping the mark or maybe just like spread up social anxiety. And I've seen that that gets a lot better with practice. And the more you kind of throw yourself into that and just pick up the phone and do it and have those conversations so the more comfortable people get And the other thing that I think I've seen a lot in early career psychs is concern about about roles, really, like what is my domain and who is in charge of what here? And I don't want to step on their toes, but I'm not sure. Maybe they're encroaching on my space and like, is it my job to be told what I should be doing here or do I tell them? And like lots of those kind of um, worries, which I think is what's interesting is wherever you work, As a psychologist, you're going to come into contact with other disciplines and you're always going to have to communicate with someone. Generally, it's the GP, right, but often like other people and particularly if you work in child and adolescent spaces, there's lots of people you're going to communicate with. That working in the same team or setting as other disciplines often gets you over those hurdles earlier too that you kind of just learn these are all people and they've all got different perspectives and pretty normal and happy to have a conversation yeah
0: yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah absolutely like uh, early on when I was a provisional psych, like I was just, uh, it was just like that lack of like role clarification. And so I had like psychiatrist fear and I was like in the hospital, it was like psychiatrists, the gods I am below them and I can't possibly do anything. So that was kind of like my fear when I was a provisional psych. Um, but then I learned that I could, right. Like I'm thinking of doing this. What would you think of this? So you can actually kind of use things and just get their perspective. And then like you say, like practice made that fear go down. Another thing that I had was I was just really, I remember very early and this is kind of a stuff up that I had, but maybe in the first six months of being a provisional psych, it's like I had confidentiality confidentiality of course drilled in. And then another clinician from a different profession called me about a client and we had a shared confidentiality agreement, um, but I was very guarded and I was like, I can't tell you anything about this patient. Like if you're calling about this and I, I was very like strict and very guarded and the clinician was kind of like, okay. And they were just a bit weirded out. Um, and now when I think of that, I'm like, we just got to remember we're all on the same team. Like we just want the best of the client. So whatever we're doing, we're just working together rather than kind of opposing each other. So once I changed my mindset around that, I found that was really helpful.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So I think you mentioned before that we do a lot of or I mentioned that we do a lot of eating disorder work. And one of the really lovely things, um, I'm not sure whether you or your listeners have heard about the eating disorder treatment programs that came out under Medicare 18 months ago. I have, but maybe listeners haven't. So Medicare expanded um, the Better Access to include a new program that is eating disorder treatment Programs where people can be referred for up to 40 sessions a year. Um, But the reason I'm segueing there now is one of the things they really thought about and they built into the way it is structured is that the best outcomes for clients are where that they have a client-centred multidisciplinary team. So the plans were structured so GPs had to see clients regularly and do reviews. So there was someone kind of holding the medical stuff when they are set up for psychologists, they automatically set up for 20 sessions of dietetics too, because that was seen as um, a really important thing. And they're structured so that clients have to have a psychiatry review at 20 sessions or before. It was this real systemic kind of validation that people need teams and that different disciplines contribute different things. And I think We really see that in eating disorders, but in other presentations too, that all different disciplines because of the way we're trained or because of clients' expectations, they get different bits of information we each hold like different parts of the pie and know different things about clients. So when you do work in a really multidisciplinary team way, you actually get a much better picture of the person and how they're functioning and what they struggle with and what they may need to work on. So I think hopefully like mental health in Australia is headed in that direction and there's been like a validation of that. So I think it's something, whether we're comfortable with it or not, we will have to get yeah, we'll good have at to get doing. comfortable yeah
0: Rebecca is there anything I've missed in talking about multidisciplinary teams like what early career clinicians should know or they could benefit from
1: um yeah probably the main thing I would think of and this was my experience as an early career psych um coming out of a psychology degree with very specific ideas about what psychology was um, and how to formulate things that working with In that time, the team that I was in had mental health nurses, social workers, psychologists, who else did I have? Um, Psychiatrists and an OT. And just talking to other disciplines about how they see and prioritise and value different parts of mental health work, really, I think, made me much more flexible as a clinician. I remember... (laughs) like you can get drilled into you at uni right about boundaries and this is what you do in boundaries 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 and i saw one of the other clinicians in the team took um one of their young male clients came in for an appointment and i saw them walk down the street um, and get a coffee and then walk back and i was like what what are, you, what are you doing there? What's what's this about? And they're like, oh, well, he's really uncomfortable sitting in a room opposite me making eye contact for 50 minutes. So, like, we have much better conversations and it's behavioural activation because he's going for a walk and he's in the sunshine. And my little mind's being blown to kind of go, I didn't know we were allowed to do that. I didn't think that that was okay. But for, like, a social worker or a mental health nurse, that's that's what you do that's, that's pretty standard. So just kind of like bumping into other ways of doing things, um, and from different perspectives, um, and sometimes getting outside of our like psychology bubble, I guess, super helpful.
0: No, I agree. Um, that even like blows my mind because I'm just like, Oh, that's cool. Okay. Wow. Cause like, I guess in my mind, I'm like, a uh, psychology bubble is like, I'm fearful of like judgment and being called like unprofessional and stuff. And so like, when I hear that, I'm like, oh no, somebody senior to me is going to tell me that I'm unprofessional and that I can't do that. So it's really interesting. Yeah. To kind of get those different perspectives.
1: Yeah. And like that, we can all offer each other something. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Um, well, Rebecca, I think I think we're kind of coming towards the end. Um, I'm really appreciative of having you on. And I did just want to kind of quickly summarize what we talked about. We talked about loneliness and isolation. We gave a few practical tips related to that, and then we kind of segued into multidisciplinary teams and what we can learn from each other. Um, did you have a final takeaway
1: for the listeners? Yeah, it probably goes back to loneliness. And it um, sounds like you've talked a lot about burnout kind of before, but that the best thing about private practice is flexibility that you can choose the clients you want to work with you can choose the hours you want to work with you get to pick how it's kind of set up and so do that don't keep doing it in a way that doesn't work for you because you think it's how it should be or it's what everyone else is doing or whatever that expectation is use the flexibility to actually make it a job you love
0: yes I totally 100% agree with that yeah for me like in private practice I'm like because I'm a I'm my boss so it's like if I'm having if I'm struggling with something or like you know doing times that actually don't work for me it's like why am I doing this to myself like use the flexibility like make it better for me like do it differently so yeah that totally speaks to me thank you so much Rebecca I think um, the listeners really benefited from hearing from you and if listeners want to find out more about you and your practice where can they find you
1: Yep. Our website is Um, www.theprac.com.au. That's got our website and all our information on it.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much again, Rebecca. And that's a wrap. So thank you listeners for listening and I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career mental health professionals. If you're loving the show and don't want to miss an episode, press subscribe on your podcast listening app. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous ones, leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. What topics would you enjoy hearing us talk about on the show? We'd love to hear from you. Email us your suggestions at mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com. Have a good one and see you next time.